Mark chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. And I want to go ahead and just read. Hopefully you're there, or we're already there. Let's start in the passage. When Jesus had come back to Capernaum several days afterward, it was heard that he was at home, and many were gathered together, so that there was no longer room, not even near the door, and he was speaking the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. Being unable to get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, Jesus' ministry has started. We see that in chapter 1. And he's very quickly drawn attention. In fact, chapter 1, verse 45 says that uh, word had spread and the crowds were so large that he couldn't stay in the cities and the little towns around Galilee. He had to go out into the wilderness. Now, that's an, an important detail. And as I was uh, just kind of working on an introduction this morning, the Holy Spirit really impressed upon my heart that that's an important detail. That that's an important spiritual principle that I think we, we tend to kind of maybe overlook. And the principle is this. When people know about Jesus, they quickly understand their need for him. Now let that just sink in for a minute. When people actually know about Jesus, they quickly understand their need for him. So the question then arises, have we as Christians, have we as a church, has the church worldwide done enough to make Jesus known? We have to move somewhere past just general statements about God and God loves you and God cares about you and, and God will do things for you and, and, and he can make your life better. Listen, Jesus died for more than that, right? Jesus died for us. So the message has to be about Jesus. Because as we saw last week, his name is wonderful, right? Can't just be, well, God, yeah, God, and this, and God, that, and, and just kind of general. Listen, billions of people in the world this morning believe in God. Then you say, which God? Well, aren't they all the same? I mean, isn't it all one God? No, we've got to be specific. It has to be about Jesus. And I believe a lot of the reason for, for spiritual indifference and moral decline in our culture falls directly on this. We have not proclaimed Jesus enough. We don't talk openly enough about the personal relationship that he's provided us through his death and resurrection. And because we don't talk about it, then we have to ask, well, is that really the case in our lives? Because we look at the lives of many people who say they're Christians and they're too similar to the world. And there's not a full commitment to, to a spirit-filled life that rejects the old self, that's separated from the world by actions and words. And then as Christians go, then the church goes to adapt to, to what people want and what people are doing. And we've modified our ministry so that we are appealing to non-believers rather than standing for the word of God and trusting the Holy Spirit to draw people. So it's a real problem that's been created because we don't talk about Jesus enough. So it, it, do we believe, verse 1, that if we stand for Jesus, that people will come to him from everywhere? If we don't spread the word about him, and we don't show transformed lives, then people probably won't be convinced. The, the Holy Spirit will convict hearts, but, but unless people see a difference in us, how are they going to know that there's such a thing as transforming power? How are they going to know that salvation is real? 
So little spiritual principle there that we need to get right at the start. But go back to the text and look in verse 1 that Jesus is back in Capernaum. He's at home, the text says. Almost certainly he's at Peter's house because there's no record that Jesus owned a home. And nearby events took place. Peter, uh, Jesus spent a lot of time in Capernaum. Peter lived in Capernaum. He was a pretty well-known fisherman there. So, so it makes sense that he's probably in Peter's house. Capernaum, even to this day, is a little fishing village. It's a little small town. Mostly today it's ruins. But at the time it was just right at the northern end of the Sea of Galilee, right on the shore there, little village, and a lot of fishermen live there because the Sea of Galilee has a lot of fish in it and it's fresh water. So, so this is just a little village. It had a, it had a synagogue, and people would come to Capernaum and go to the synagogue. Well, Peter lived there, and Jesus spent time there. So Jesus is in Capernaum. The crowds have heard him speak. They've watched him heal. And they're so hungry for the truth. They're so hungry for mercy and for help that they press into the house. They're not going to be hindered from hearing the word of the Lord. They're, they're hungry. They're fervent. They're passionate. They're zealous. They're ready to see Jesus. And I asked myself this week, after 42 and a half years of being saved, do I have that kind of hunger? to get into the Word every day, that I can't wait to just dive into the Word of God and, and learn and get insight and be encouraged and be, and be challenged? Do I have the hunger to get to the house of the Lord every Sunday, to get to prayer meeting, to get to Bible study, to, to, to be in the presence of God, and, and to get here early? This is a problem we have as a church. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick. I'm allowed to after seven years of being your pastor, right? Can I pick a little bit? How many say I can pick? All right, good. That's all of you, so I'm just going to say it. We're not getting here early. We're starting late. We're showing up right at the last minute, right at, right at 930. We need to come and prepare our hearts. Come on, many of you live within two miles of this church. Come and prepare your heart. Show up at 840. Pray with the prayer band. Get your heart ready to seek the Lord. It can't just be this casual show up when I want. I don't know. The weather's kind of bad. I'm kind of tired. I, I, I need my coffee. Come on. If we don't have hunger, right? Come on. I'm being serious. We need hunger for the Lord. Get here at 9.15. If you're not coming to prayer band, you should. Come here at 9.15. Get in the building. Make all your greetings then. Get your coat off. Get your Bible out. Get your pen out. Get ready to be in the house of the Lord. Spend some time praying and preparing your heart. Because if we're dull, and I think we are a little bit this morning, we're, uh, we, we need the Lord to restore the joy of our salvation, right? We need, we, need to, we need to create, God, create a clean heart, renew a right spirit within me. Come on, I need that today. I need that today. So this house is packed. People can't even get in the door. Everybody wants to hear Jesus speak the word. Uh, all, it's crammed up until the doorway. Now, first century homes had kind of a, 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 kind of a, a courtyard type of area, kind of a large room that all the other rooms were kind of off of. So we're going to assume, based on the text, that the people are all in this large space. And it's so packed that, that when these four men show up with their friend on the stretcher, on this kind of pallet, handheld thing, that, that they open the door and it's like, yeah, you're not getting in here. Like, it's not happening. Like, this place is jammed. I'm, I'm getting claustrophobic. It's so hot in here. So they know there's nowhere 
for them. Uh, no way to get close. Nobody's saying, hey, oh, you got somebody who's paralyzed there? Here, hold on, let us clear a path for you. Everybody wants to be near Jesus. Everybody needs Jesus' help. It's hard to imagine just how intense this crowd really was. So try to picture it. Remember the woman with the hemorrhage when, when she's trying to reach to Jesus and the text says that she presses forward through the crowd and she touches his robe and Jesus immediately stops and says, who touched me? And the people around him are like, you're kidding, right? Like, you're serious? Do you not see that everybody's touching you? He says, no, there was something different. Try to, try to picture this. Try to, get a, try to get a sense of this. I was thinking last night, I, I once saw a concert at Wembley Stadium in London with 110,000 other people. The place only seats 82,000, so there were 30,000 of us on the soccer pitch for six hours. I literally could not move. Like if I had tried to fall down, if I had tried to pass out, I wouldn't have gone anywhere. I just would have leaned into somebody's shoulder. I'm not kidding when I say I was jammed. For six hours. That's what this crowd's like. People are crammed in. There's not room for another person. They're all sitting there listening to Jesus. You know, when we face difficulty and life puts obstacles in our way, how do we respond? These men show up. They have their friend on a pallet. He's paralyzed. He needs Jesus. They've brought him all this way. And, and, and what are they going to do now? Because they get to the door, and they're not getting in the door. They're not going to see Jesus. Nothing's going to happen. So when that hits, when we get to those moments, do we develop a deeper determination in our faith, in our obedience, and that we're at the center of God's work, and we're going to go forward? Or do we miss out on what the Lord can do because there's an obstacle there? Oh, what do I do now? There are a number of reactions that we can make, and I want to encourage you to write these down this morning because I want us to see ourselves in this. I want us to, to evaluate this morning where we stand. What, what would I have done? What would have been my normative reaction if I was these men? And I believe there are four primary reactions that we can come to when we hit these obstacles. Option number one, we could become angry and bitter. Angry and bitter. Confronted by this obstacle, the, the, the irritation of the situation, it could have caused them to get annoyed and, and despondent and, and maybe frustrated. Jesus, why aren't you in a larger place? Look, all these people want to come and see you and hear you and hear your teaching and be healed. Why did you go into Peter's living room? Like, seriously, why couldn't you have, you have been in a larger place so we could get our friend to you? This is a, a, a surprisingly... Uh, typical reaction that we can have. We get angry, we get frustrated, maybe we even irritated with the Lord that He doesn't just make it easier for us, and that there's an obstacle that we think shouldn't be there, that the situation should play out differently. And instead of praying, what do we do? Start to complain to our family, start to complain to our friends, we start to complain to social media talk about how unfair life is. We keep bringing it up. Oh, I don't know what to do. and I'm so annoyed. These guys could have stood at the door. They could have complained. Are you kidding me? What's with this crowd? Can somebody let us through? Seriously, why is nobody helping, right? They could have 
could have kind of moaned and griped and complained and, and mumbled and murmured. They could have laid a guilt trip on the people inside. Look, you're able-bodied. We got a guy here who's pearly. Can you not, can, can nobody create some space in there? Like, come on. I know that would have been my reaction sometimes. And when that happens, we start to wallow in irritation and self-pity. Listen, don't be quick to discount this as something that you wouldn't do because it creeps into our thinking more than we think. And if we allow it, even for a minute, the enemy will exploit it. And he'll try to create that as the normal narrative of our thinking. That, that when life doesn't treat us right, that we then should be angry and bitter. Option two, they could have given up. They could have given up. They could have taken it as an indication that they just weren't supposed to get to Jesus. You know, sometimes it doesn't go like we think it would. And instead of fighting back, instead of getting more determined, we, we start to resign ourselves to the problem. We, 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 we just kind of yield emotionally and spiritually. And, and, and that kind of um, fatalistic mindset, what happens is that can quickly transfer into very lazy theology. What do I mean by that? Well, we start to say, well, I guess the door wasn't open today, so I guess it's not the Lord's will. I guess, I guess his leading isn't, isn't now, and it's not meant to be, so what can I do? I mean, you know, I prayed a couple times, and it just didn't happen, and, and I don't know what to do. If that's your tendency, like, I'm serious, if that's, if that's your tendency, I want you to take some time this week to study some of the people in the Bible who trusted and pressed on instead of giving up. People like Joseph, who was betrayed and accused and put in jail. Moses, who wandered for 40 years being the only faithful person with a bunch of faithless people. Gideon, who had the Lord reduce his army down to just 300. David, when Saul pursued him and tried to kill him, and his own son Absalom rebelled against him. Elisha, when he was at Dothan, and the army surrounded him, and there seemed to be no escape. The apostles, when, when they were threatened and told, you guys better shut up or you're going to go to jail. You can't talk about Jesus anymore. Or, or look at 2 Timothy 1. When Timothy's written to Paul and said, I'm done, I'm through, I'm, I, I can't do it anymore, I give up, this is too hard, I hate ministry, I hate these people, I, I'm out of here. And Paul says, nope, you're not. Now's not the time to give up. Now's the time to fan the flames of your faith. Now's the time to remember your calling from the Lord. Listen, if, you're, if your normal reaction is to throw up your hands and say, I don't know what to do, it's time to fan the flames. It's time to ask the Lord to stir your heart and to give you a determination and a courage and a willingness to press forward. All right? So number one, angry and bitter. Number two, they gave up. Number three, they could have deferred the opportunity. In other words, they could have said, you know, uh, Charlie, you need to go and see Jesus, and we get that. We carried you here. But look, the crowd's huge. Let's look for another time. Let, let's Let's... Let's, let's put this off. Let's put a pin in it, as they say. Let, let's know that we need to get to Jesus at some point. Look, your situation's not changing. You're, you're going to be paralyzed tomorrow, so what can we do? Like, we can't get to this crowd. The house is too small. We, we just need to wait for another time when he's out in the wilderness and it's more convenient, and then we'll get you there. 
Rather than seizing the opportunities the Lord gives us to act in faith and to, and to experience his work in our life, there are times when we postpone, listen now, because it's not comfortable or it's going to take some effort or our faith is going to have to be stretched. And that mindset causes us to delay our obedience and to put off trusting until it makes more sense or until we can get our hands around an outcome that we like. Now, there's no question that the Bible says, rest in the Lord, wait patiently for him. That's a a discipline of faith. That's a willingness not to seize control. But there are also times of opportunity that the Lord puts in front of us where it's not time to shirk back, where it's not time to be hindered by, by obstacles we don't like. All right? So they could be angry and bitter. They could give up. They could defer the opportunity. Or number four, this is what they do. Look back at the text. They could move forward in faith. They could be confident that if they persevere, that they can get in the presence of the Lord and he'll help him. Look back at what it says. It says they were unable to get to Jesus because of the crowd. So what do they do? They go up on the roof and they dig an opening so they can lower their friend down to Jesus. Now before we look at, at the application of that, and we'll draw a couple principles out of that, we need to understand the level of commitment this took. Think about what this took. Because all four of these guys have to be in agreement that they're going to do this. You know how hard it is to get four people to agree on anything? If, if you doubt me, just try to figure out what you're going to eat for dinner tonight. What do you guys want for dinner? I don't know. Chicken? No, I'm tired of chicken. Pizza? I can't eat another piece of pizza. Red meat? I'm not eating red meat. How about some pie? No, I'm off sugar. Like, seriously, this is a daily discussion in our house. So try to get four people to agree We're going to haul our friend on this pallet up some stairs to the roof. Then we're going to dig open the roof, and we're going to lower him down. And the paralyzed guy has to say, I'm willing, I trust you guys, to carry me up without dropping me. And to make sure I get down to Jesus. Now, first century homes, many times there were stairs on the outside of the house. Like I used to see as a kid when we'd go to the Jersey Shore. The Jersey Shore, you'd have these tall three-story wooden homes, and then there'd be stairs up the sides you get to each level. Well, well, this is probably a a one-and-a-half to two-story kind of home, and it has some outside stairs so you can get up on the roof. And the roof had great importance in the daily life of people in the first century. It was a sturdy, flat roof with just just enough pitch so the rain water would come down because in a dry climate like the Middle East, you need all the water you can get. So, So rain was precious. And in first century Israel, it was common for the family to have a place where they could go up on the roof. They'd spend some time. The climate was very mild. And you could go up and and gather there and just have some fellowship. Beautiful location in Capernaum, looking right over the Sea of Galilee. I imagine that Peter and his family spent a lot of time on the roof. And the roof, uh, by archaeological standards uh, and by construction standards, had three layers. It had wooden beams or, or trusses, then it had a straw layer, and then on the top there were clay tiles. And, and that would be pressed down with kind of a, a, a roller that would push along. It was kind of a stone roller that would push the tile down into the clay so everything was tight. Now the men knew this. So they say to themselves, 
look, the only way we're going to get to Jesus is, is to not go through the house, because nobody's helping us with that. There's no way, even if they cleared a path, the four of us could carry this guy through. I mean, we'd have to clear out the place. So we're not getting there here. So, so how are we going to do this? We're going to have to go up on the roof. Now, we don't know. The Holy Spirit doesn't tell us what led us, what, what led them there. Maybe the men, maybe the man who was paralyzed had begged them, you know, I've got to see Jesus. Please get me to Jesus. I can't get there on my own. Please, please just take me. I, I've heard he teaches and I heard he heals. He changed me. Please get me there. Or maybe his faith was kind of struggling and the friend said, look, buddy, we need to help you. We're going to take you to Jesus. Well, I don't want to bother you. No, listen, this is, this is our calling. Whatever the case may be, they were blocked from getting to Jesus, but they didn't stop. They go up on the roof and they open it up and they lower the man down. Now, what do we learn from that? Why on January 14, 2018, do we study this passage? Well, I think the Lord wants to teach us three things out of this. And I want you to write these truths down because they are very, very important truths. Some of them are simple. You know them. You've known them all your life. But maybe the Lord just wants to remind you of them this morning. All right? So three important truths. Number one, Jesus is the only answer to any problem. I want you to say that with me as a congregation. Ready? Jesus is the only answer to any problem. See, this man's got problems that are beyond significant. And Jesus' ministry is full of examples of the power of God and the fact that blindness and leprosy and paralysis and and unsolvable medical conditions and, and demon possession and even death are nothing for the Lord to overcome. Because nothing's impossible with the Lord, right? But there's an interesting trap that we can fall into. And the trap is that often we only go to the Lord when the problem is substantial. I really want you to get this. A lot of times we only go to the Lord when the problem is substantial or when the obstacle is a giant wall rather than a little speed bump. And what will really indicate that we're walking by faith and that we're submitting to the Spirit, is when we go to the Lord with any problem. Tell me one problem, not verbally, but think about this. Tell me one problem that we don't need to take to the Lord for His help and His strength and His peace. Tell tell me one thing that doesn't fall in that category. You guys have heard me joke about over the years my high standards for people that drive around me, right? You know that's true about me? You know my impatience for people that don't hold my high standards? Who are texting and putting on makeup and eating and switching lanes without using a signal and pulling right in front of me and driving five miles an hour below the speed limit in the left lane. By the way, the left lane is the fast lane, okay? Now, I can get frustrated and uptight when I drive, and I do. My kids will verify that. My wife will verify that. Or I can continually ask the Lord for help with dealing with drivers who don't bring me joy. I'm being very serious. I can get frustrated, annoyed, honk, yell, 
be bitter, be angry, turn up my music, do all the things I sometimes do. Or I can ask him to calm me because I don't want to be angry and sin. And I certainly don't want to hurt my witness by my reactions. And I really need wisdom and discernment so I don't honk at one of you. Like, I, I'm serious. I, I've, got to, I've got to get... Now, this is a little thing, right? This is, this is maybe an hour a day on the road, driving, going along, and, and, and it just takes one person to really frustrate you. But that's a simple everyday issue. But here's the thing. That simple everyday issue can lead me into sin if my thoughts and my actions aren't sanctified. So I need the Lord's help. So every time I get in the car, I need to pray. And I've been convicted about this in the last couple of weeks. I need to pray, Lord, I need your mindset now. And if I don't get there when I want to and somebody cuts me off and somebody's texting, which they should be arrested for that, but it's okay. It's all right. I'm not a cop. Want to be sometimes, but I'm not. Is Jesus the answer to that problem or not? Because clearly I can't solve it. The default belief of mature faith is that he is all we need. He's the only one we need. So if you're facing sickness, he's the great physician. He's Jehovah Rapha, the healer. If you're needing help this morning, you have needs, he's Jehovah Jireh. He's the provider. If you're trapped in a bad situation, he's Jehovah Palette, the deliverer. If you need Leading, he's Jehovah Rohi, the shepherd. If you're weak, he's Jehovah Uzi. He's your strength. When you need his presence, he's Jehovah Shama, the God who's there. If you need help this morning, God's more than willing. Ladies, your new Bible studies about the names of the Lord because we want to just be reminded how good God is. We want to remember how God meets us at our point of need. And that Jesus is the only answer. So that's first truth. Jesus is the only answer to any problem. How many know that's true this morning? Number two, when you need to get close to the Lord, nothing will stop you. When you need to get close to the Lord, nothing will stop you. These five men needed to see Jesus. They knew he was the only answer, but they were impeded by circumstances. Life threw them a huge curveball, and they didn't see legitimate options instantly on how to overcome the problem but they're hungry to be in Jesus's presence and their hunger to be in his presence was far more important than some temporary obstacle hindering them so what did they do they did the best thing you can do they looked up they looked up and they said hey wait a second there are steps to the roof And right there, they make a decision of faith. They carry their friend up there. Now, these steps were not as wide as this platform. These were narrow steps intended for one person. It was not intended for two people wide plus a person in the middle. They just weren't built that wide. So somehow, they've got to figure out a way to get them up. So the two in the front are probably holding the pallet like this. And the two in the back are probably walking tightly up like this, carrying the pallet. And the friend's at an angle. Think about this. This is not just an easy easy situation. Let's just hop on the elevator and we'll get up there. But they're not going to let that 
problem stop them because they want to get their friend to Jesus. So they finally get up on the roof. Think about the effort that took. And they're breathing heavy. And all of a sudden they're like, all right, we're not done yet. We've got to start digging down. So they start pulling apart the clay tiles. And they start clawing at the straw. And the straw starts to shred and fall on the crowd below. And I've always wondered, what's the crowd thinking at this point? Because they may have heard somebody in the roof, but no big deal. That just happened. But, but now, are they so preoccupied with Jesus' teaching that they don't notice? Like, all of a sudden, is this snowing? What's going on? And the straw is starting to fall down. And the crowd's packed tightly, and Jesus is talking. And, and I don't think he's, he's stopped yet. And all of a sudden, they're, they're getting hit. Like, what's going on up there? And then they see a little ray of light and a little opening and then a bigger hole, and a bigger hole, and a bigger hole, until they see feces peering down. Now, at this point, there's no way the crowd's not distracted. And at some point, I guess, Jesus stops talking, and the crowd starts murmuring, and they look up, and all of a sudden, that hole that's been dug open in the roof is filled, and the light disappears, and they see a pallet, and then slowly that pallet is lowered. I don't know how they did it. I don't think they showed up with ropes planning to go up on the roof. So how did they do it? I have no clue. But somehow, that pallet starts to lower down slowly, carefully, so the man doesn't slip off because he slips off. A lot of people are going to get hurt. Slowly. And then somehow the crowd starts to part in some way. Maybe some people have to step outside. And this man is lowered down. Think about the looks of the friends' faces. Oh, we did it. Yes. High fives. Did they high five in the first century? I don't know. Maybe. Shook hands, hugged. I don't say They did something. But imagine the joy when they finally get him into the presence of the Lord. Their perseverance, their faith, their steadiness got him there because they're not going to be stopped from being close to the Lord. Now listen, how much did that describe you and me? What obstacles are we allowing to prevent us from trusting in Jesus? What obstacles are we allowing to prevent us from walking with the Lord? It's so easy, isn't it? To have other priorities, to let life step in, to let busyness take over, to let the schedule dictate, to let apathy hinder us from being with the Lord. But unlike these five men, here's the advantage that we have. We can be in the presence of the Lord anytime we want. These men had to get to Jesus, go through obstacles, climb the stairs, open up the roof, drop him down to get him to Jesus. This is what Jesus did. He opened up the passage. We sang about it earlier. Directly to his throne of grace any time we need him. That's an amazing privilege. You know, we had a, we had a powerful prayer meeting Thursday night, didn't we? Small crowd. I, I'm, I'm telling you that for information. We had a small little crowd. But the Lord was here. And we called on him with great fervency. And we brought serious concerns, some which still exist, to his throne of grace that, that we can't solve ourselves. Now, I'm not telling you that to create guilt because guilt never motivates. 
I'm telling you that because I'm sad that more of us weren't here to experience the presence of God in that service. And I know a lot of people are sick right now. My daughter's very sick. I know our schedules are full. I get that. I know even that there's no child care offered. But I want to encourage you, not challenge you, I want to encourage you, be at the next prayer meeting. Be at the next prayer meeting. And if you're saying, well, who's going to watch my kids? And, and what am I going to do? Well, I have two options for you. Either plan now to get a sitter for two hours. Or, second option, let's have a bunch of us volunteer to do child care on a rotation basis. Not, not three, okay? Because three's not going to get it done. We need 25 to 30 people, okay? 25 to 30 people to say, once a year, I will volunteer to serve at a prayer meeting. I'll go to the other 11, and I'll serve at one. And then everybody can come. Because right now we have families that can't come together because there's a child care situation. So if everybody in this room would serve once, we wouldn't have to worry about it for a couple years. We just throw you in there once in a while and then everybody else can come. I'll take a turn in there and somebody else can do prayer meeting. So here's what I'm offering this morning. There's a sign-up sheet out on the Welcome Center. And if you're willing to... To, to volunteer, to be on a list, to help with watching kids at prayer meeting, I want you to sign up because I would love in February to be able to say we have child care offered up to sixth grade so that you can come to prayer meeting. Why? Because we want to be in the presence of the Lord. We want to get close to the Lord. So Jesus is the only answer, number one. Number two, we need to get close to the Lord. Nothing will stop us. Let's get to the last one. Look back at verse 5 at Jesus' response. And Jesus, tell me the next three words, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Jesus doesn't say, wow, guys, that was really creative. Wow, you are some determined little guys. Look, look at you. Like you got him up on the roof. You opened up the roof. You know, the homeowner, I think Peter's going to have something to say about that. He's got a little bit of a temper, but we're going to be okay. We'll get through it, all right? Wow, wow, man, that is amazing. Look at the, look at the love you have for your friend. Look at the empathy you have for them. It, Jesus, it, it doesn't say, Jesus said, wow, look at that. It says that he saw there, tell me the word again, faith. They don't say a word in the text. They're not like the centurion who comes and sends his servant and says, you don't need to come to my house. You just say the word and it'll be done. It'll be fine. They don't touch him or cry out to him like, like the lepers or like Bartimaeus or like the woman who was in the crowd when Jairus came. They, they just dig through the roof. They drop their friend down. And in that action, look at it, they show their faith. It's a bold, courageous, persevering faith. Listen, how powerful is it when our faith is proven through our character and our quiet actions? Anybody can talk. I'm living proof of that. But when people see our trust, when people see our dependence, when people see our hope and our conviction in our actions, when they see it in the quietness of our obedience and, and the quietness of our trust, that's when our faith becomes authentic. 
And that leads to the third truth, that the Lord blesses and rewards our faith. Notice that Jesus sees their faith. The four friends and the paralyzed man. And then he says to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven. Now, now wait a minute. That's not why he came. He came to be healed. And Jesus does that. If you look at verse 11, we're not going to read it because of time. Jesus does heal him, but he uses this situation to prove his power and his authority of God because the scribes are sitting there fuming. When Jesus said, son, your sins are forgiven, they're like, oh, I can't believe you just said that. And in their minds, they're saying, he doesn't have the authority to do that. Who does he think he is? Only God can forgive sins. This is just Jesus from Nazareth, just some teacher that's got people's attention, just the latest trend of the month. He's not going to last. How dare he forgive sins? And Jesus says, I know what you're thinking. I know you think I'm committing blasphemy right now. And I know you think that I don't have the right to forgive sins. So let me ask you guys, which one's harder? To say your sins are forgiven or to tell this guy over here, get up and walk? It's rhetorical. Because before they can stammer out an answer, he says, get up and walk. And the man immediately gets up, picks up his pallet, and is rejoicing. And you just imagine the crowd. And Jesus says, look, if I have the authority and the ability to say to that guy who's never walked, whose friends made all this effort, look at the hole in the roof, men. Look, look at it. See the effort they went to to get him here. I just, I just made him walk. I have the authority to forgive sins because I am God in flesh. I'm the Savior and the Lord. Now in 2,000 years since this took place, that fact has not changed. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And you and I still have problems that are greater than us. We have obstacles that right now are grinding us down that seem too hard to overcome. And we can respond in anger. We can be disillusioned. We can be resigned. Or like these five men, we can be bold and confident and persevere and trust in the Lord and not be deterred by the circumstances. They're still there. They still exist. But we're going to show faith that when we trust the Lord, he will bless and he reward. And that's the kind of faith that God is calling you and me to today. So here, I'm done. What's your obstacle? What's your obstacle? And how are you going to respond? Are you going to stand and look at the problem and go, what can I do? Or are you going to do anything to get to the presence of the Lord? Are you going to go up to the roof and dig away the tiles of the obstacle and say, I am going to the Lord because the Lord will help.